Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 110, A Greco-Roman Hero. The reign of terror of the Emperor Phocas had lasted six years. Surely a revolt would be launched soon. And it was, but it was launched far from Constantinople. The ancient city of Carthage was such a long distance from the capital that even the torturers of Phocas were too far away to be of any danger. This part of North Africa was not joined to the rest of the empire by land. The Senate in Constantinople sowed the seeds of rebellion by writing to the exarch of Carthage, informing him of the situation and begging for action. The exarch of Carthage indeed decided it was time to act, and sent two forces, one under his son and one under his nephew, to defeat the hated Phocas. As they moved towards Constantinople, the emperor panicked. He put the blues and greens in charge of the city, but all they did was riot. In the end they took him captive and ferried him to the ship of the commanders of the African force, which had arrived in the harbour of Constantinople. The emperor was brought, imprisoned in chains, to their leader. He'd lost half of the empire and murdered thousands of his own people. He was as cruel a person as had ever been emperor. Stood before him was a 36-year-old man who held the hopes of the empire in his hands. The man, who we now know as Heraclius, stood over the beaten emperor and sneered. So, wretch, this is how you've led the empire. Phocas looked up at him and with a rare show of courage said, Will you do any better? It was probably a very good question. But Heraclius didn't answer it. Instead, he strode forward and with a single swing of his massive sword he cut Phocas in half. Nobody knows how old the defeated emperor was, but he'd run the empire, really rather badly, for eight years. Heraclius marched towards Constantinople, cheering crowds lining the route. The monster was dead, and a true hero had arrived. Now, Phocas is one of those examples of a man who was damned by history for many years. His successor was a very popular and highly successful emperor. No contemporary Byzantine historian was going to write a single word of praise for the man that Heraclius overthrew. Phocas is certainly a victim of the truism that it is the victors who write the histories, while it's almost certainly true he was vindictive and quick to torture and execute, it's likely he wasn't as completely evil as the Byzantine historians made out. Even the story of his death may have been manufactured to present Heraclius as the heroic victor. Other sources tell us that Phocas was actually lynched by a mob before the usurpers even arrived. Still, none of that was any use to him in 610, given that his head and his shoulders were no longer attached. The Emperor Heraclius marched into Constantinople on Monday the 5th of October 610. The new emperor looked like an emperor should. He was just 36 years old and he just had a feeling about him which made him seem like he was going to be a success. He was strong, with curly blonde hair and shiny polished armour, although apart from coming to Constantinople with an army to overthrow Phocas, he had no fighting experience at all. Heraclius was crowned that afternoon and was immediately married to Eudocia. Very little is known about the early life of Heraclius. His father, Heraclius the Elder, was from Cappadocia and of Armenian origin. The elder man was a general under Morris during the war with Baram Chobin. After the war, Morris appointed him as Exarch of Carthage. Heraclius inherited a very, very bad situation. The Slavs and Avars had completely overrun the Balkans and were raiding imperial territory close to Constantinople. The Persians had invaded Syria and Palestine and were still around taking more and more imperial land. But, bad as it was, the situation soon got worse. The Persian army was meeting very little resistance and soon they took both Damascus and Antioch. 
In 614, the worst possible thing happened. The Persians had reached Jerusalem and agreed with the citizens that although it was now under Persian control, they wouldn't change much. Christians and Jews could continue to be Christians and Jews. That was just fine by them. For a month or so, it was okay. People just went along as before. But then, without warning, the Christians rose up in revolt. They killed just about every Persian or Jew they could find. The remaining Persians fled to their great general, Shah Baraz, who was furious and decided to return to the city and have his revenge. When the Persian army arrived in Jerusalem, virtually every Christian was slaughtered. Even the monks and nuns were murdered. Shah Baraz understood what the city meant to the empire and understood there were things in the city that were important to all Christians. The True Cross had been rescued from Jerusalem by Constantine's mother Helena and had later been returned to its rightful place. Shah Baraz knew all about the great relic, how important it was and knew how he could really upset the emperor. He grabbed the True Cross and the other holy relics and shipped the whole lot off back to Tisiphon. So, what did Heraclius do? He immediately launched an army to take on the Persians, didn't he? The Persians had to be beaten now, surely. Heraclius did not begin a campaign immediately. Amazingly, it was 12 long years before the army was sent into action. Heraclius was an intelligent leader and he knew his army wasn't ready. He knew that his empire was in a time of great crisis and maybe the end was in sight. He also knew that if he sent the army out now, then they would be beaten. His force was simply not strong enough and would be crushed in battle. Then there would be no army and the empire would fall. So, he planned how he would defeat the Persians. He planned and he planned and he planned. Just like Constantius Chlorus in Britain, he wasn't going to fail because he hadn't planned well enough. This really was planning, planning and more planning. And more planning. In 618, the situation managed to get even worse when the Persians took Egypt and stopped the supply of grain to the capital. Heraclius decided he needed to move the capital to the safety of Carthage so he could carry on rebuilding from there. This was one of the best decisions he made, but not in the way you might expect. When he announced he was leaving, everyone was horrified. The people begged him to stay. The patriarch Sergius also begged him to stay. Heraclius saw his chance. I will stay, he said, but only if you all accept whatever I demand of you. The people agreed and the church agreed. Heraclius knew what he was doing and he knew now that he would be supported, whatever he might want done. To rebuild the army, Heraclius split the empire or the small bit that he controlled, into what he called themes. Each of the old provinces formed part of a theme. There were four themes in Asia Minor called the Armeniacon in the northeast, the Opsikion in the northwest, the Anatolikon in the centre, and the Threkesion in the west. Later emperors would improve and add to this system. Each theme was under the control of a stratego, who was a military commander. Theme comes from the Greek word thema, which means a division of troops. Soldiers living in the themes were given land and food in return for serving in the army. This led to a well-trained and well-fed army, exactly what was needed for fighting a successful war. The system of provinces led by Praetorian prefects, which was used by Diocletian and Constantine and their successors, was now gone. The empire was changing again. Heraclius wanted stability in the west before he went fighting in the east, and so he patched up relations with the Avars. They could be dealt with later. What Heraclius needed most before fighting the Persians was money. He imposed new taxes, forced some people to lend him some money, and he got his friends and family in Carthage and Africa to give him large sums of cash. 
The other thing he did was talk to the patriarch. The Orthodox Christian Church was very rich. People often left money to the church when they died, in the hope they might have more chance of going to heaven. Heraclius went to Patriarch Sergius and asked that he make the resources of the church available to him. This was going to be a holy war, he said. He was taking on the Persians, who had some strange fire-worshipping religion, and he was fighting for Christianity. Sergius agreed, and all of the church's money was made available, even though Heraclius had just married his own niece, which the church was not too happy about. For twelve years, Heraclius rebuilt his army and his treasury, rebuilt relations with the church, and reinvigorated his people. Despite the constant attempts by the Persians to draw him into battle, he resisted. The people pleaded with him to act, but trusted him when he said they had to wait longer. In 622, the emperor was ready. He had money, troops and a loyal population. He did not, however, have any experience of fighting battles. Fortunately, there were loads of great generals in the empire to fight the battles for him. Ah, no, wait a minute, there weren't, were there? And they hadn't died in battle, had they? No, Focus had had most of them killed. There were some good officers coming up, but none of them had any experience fighting great campaigns. In 622, something else happened. The Prophet Muhammad fled with a few followers from a city called Mecca to another city called Medina. A new, mighty force was on the rise. But that is not for this chapter. On Monday the 5th of April 622, Heraclius stepped onto the flagship of his fleet. He was going to lead the army into war himself. The fleet sailed down the Sea of Mamara and to the Hellespont and round Asia Minor to the Bay of Issus. This was completely unexpected for the Persians. They expected the empire's armies to go through Armenia. It was autumn before Heraclius turned his troops towards Armenia and the armies met in Cappadocia. The Persians were led by the great general Shabaraz, the most experienced commander of their empire. The Roman army was led by Heraclius, the first time he had led men into battle. The battle was fierce, but soon the Persian army fled, and the imperial soldiers chased them as if, wrote the poet George of Pisidia, they were chasing wild goats. The army then spent the winter in Cappadocia. This time there was no complaining from the troops. They'd won a victory, and it seems would do anything for their emperor. He may have had no military experience, but he was a natural leader of men. He could inspire them to do anything. They were honoured men, he told them. They were fighting for themselves, their families, the empire and the cross. In the spring, he said, they would have their revenge on the Persians and their strange fire-worshipping religion. The soldiers loved him. Morale was as high as it could be. When spring arrived, Heraclius began his second campaign. Maybe he'd just been lucky the first time and he was too inexperienced to win again. Or maybe not. In fact, definitely not. The second campaign was even more successful. After spending Easter with his family, Heraclius marched his army southeastward through Armenia into the place we now know as Azerbaijan. This was the centre of Persian fire worship, known as Zoroastrianism, and was a good place to make the Persians understand they were to be crushed. Khosros II, king of Persia, was in his great palace in the city of Ganzak with 40,000 troops. When he heard the imperial army was approaching, he withdrew to Nineveh. Heraclius strode into Ganzak and completely destroyed the great temple and its statue of Khosros, surrounded by the winged figures of the sun, moon and stars. He then moved to Thebamis, the birthplace of Zoroaster, the founder of the Persian religion. This town was burned to the ground. The empire had taken its revenge for the sack of Jerusalem. This, thought Heraclius, was going pretty well. 
The emperor then spent the winter recruiting more troops from the local tribes by persuading them that as they were Christians, they should be fighting against Persia. The next spring, the Roman and Persian armies met near the edge of Armenia. The Persian army was huge, led again by Shah Baraz. Again, the imperial army scored a great victory, virtually destroying the Persian force. Soon, another general called Shahin arrived with yet another army, but he arrived too late and turned around to retreat. Unfortunately for him, it was too late to retreat, and his army too was slaughtered. This really was going too well. Heraclius marched his victorious army southwards towards the Euphrates. He stood, tall and proud, at the head of an invincible force. The imperial army had been kicked around and defeated by Persian, Avar and Slav alike for 20 years, but was now showing itself to be the best-trained, happiest and strongest army in the known world. Nothing could beat Heraclius's army. It was because he felt invincible, though, that Heraclius made his one mistake. Shah Baraz had followed every move the imperial army had made, and knowing that Heraclius was going to need to cross the Euphrates, he got there first. He camped his army on the far side of a rickety old bridge, which was the only crossing point for miles and miles around. As the Romans approached, he did Aurelian's favourite trick. He pretended to retreat. The imperial army fell for the trick and flooded across the bridge, and Shabaraz turned his army around. The leading soldiers of the imperial force were cut down where the bridge met the riverbank. This was a disaster for Heraclius. The Persian forces began to finish off the troops who had made it to the other side. Unfortunately for them, though, this distracted them from the crossing point. The emperor saw his chance, and without any concern for his own safety, mounted his horse and charged across the bridge. The remaining loyal soldiers, who loved their emperor more than soldiers had loved an emperor for hundreds of years, followed him. A giant Persian stood on the bridge blocking his path, but Heraclius cut him down with one swing of his sword. The Persian archers noticed what was happening and fired a volley of arrows, many of which hit the emperor as he charged, but still he charged. Shabaraz watched on in amazement. He turned to a captured Greek soldier and said, Look at your emperor. He's no more afraid of these arrows than an anvil would be. Heraclius and the remains of his army made it across the bridge, and the battle fought afterwards was fierce, but it ended in what might be called a score draw. Both armies trudged home, very weary after it. Heraclius had seen what it might be like to lose a battle. He'd stared defeat in the face, and he didn't like what he saw. This, he thought, was not going to happen again. Cosros now made his final plans to destroy Heraclius and his empire. He ordered Shabaraz to take an army and march on Constantinople. He had recently contacted the Avars and persuaded them to lay siege to the city. He ordered Shaheen to take a force of over 50,000 men and destroy the imperial army. He told the general he was not allowed to fail. If Shaheen failed, said the king, it meant death for the general. Heraclius now had a choice. He could do one of three things. Choice one, he could head home and protect his capital from the Avars and the Persians. Choice two, he could march out to meet Shaheen's army. Choice three, he could play the Persians at their own game and march down to their capital, sack it and try to regain the true cross. So, which one do you think he chose? Would he protect his capital, attack the enemy's capital or meet the enemy army in battle? What do you think he did? Well, he was no ordinary man and he didn't think like ordinary men. Heraclius did all three. He split his army. He sent a few thousand men back to Constantinople by sea. He sent a large army led by his brother Theodore to meet Shaheen, and he led a small force himself towards the Persian capital, which was, he thought, 
virtually defenceless. Heraclius did not want the people of Constantinople to feel abandoned by their emperor, so he wrote to them every day, telling them how to defend the capital and assuring them of his love for the city and his people. He told them they must hold out and eventual victory would be theirs. Although 80,000 barbarians were camped below its walls, the people of the city were in high spirits. Every day the patriarch would walk around the walls, holding high above his head an icon of Jesus' mother Mary. An icon is a sacred picture or statue, and we will hear much more about them in later chapters. Every citizen of the city helped to defend it, along with only 12,000 cavalry troops sent to help. The city held out against the siege weapons. In 626, Theodore's army crushed the Persian army of Shaheen. The general, remembering what Cosros had said about failure, committed suicide. Cosros was blindly furious, and it sent him a bit potty. He ordered that Shaheen's body be packed in salt and sent back to him. When the dead general arrived, Cosros had him whipped. You can be quite sure that when a man starts whipping dead people, he's lost some of his common sense. The Persian people began to realise their king was mad as a hatter. The siege of Constantinople carried on and on. The Persians waited on the other side of the Bosphorus. They had no siege engines and there was little point in them taking part in the siege itself. They had assured the Slavs and Avars of their support and were content to wait until the whole thing was nearly over before joining in. On the 2nd of August 626, the Avar leader, called the Kagan, made one last offer to release Constantinople, but the amount of money he wanted was ridiculously high. The Avars met with the imperial representatives, along with three Persian envoys, and it was obvious that the Avars and the Persians really wanted to destroy the city. The Persians sat in luxurious seats, while the men from Constantinople were made to stand. There was a violent argument, and the imperial representatives left in a huff. But the three Persians, travelling back to their camp at Chalcedon by boat later that evening, were captured. They told the imperial spies all about the plans for the attack on the city in order to save their own lives. This, though, didn't work. The first envoy was beheaded, and the second had his hands cut off and was sent to the Kagan. The third was rowed to a spot in front of the Persian encampment. The Romans shouted over the water to get the Persians' attention, and then chopped off the envoy's head in front of them. They wrote a note which said... We have sent your other two envoys back to the Kagan, and here is the third. They then attached the note to a spike, which they plunged into the newly severed head of the envoy, and chucked head, spike and note into the Persian camp. All the secrets were known. The Persians were slaughtered as their fleet of rafts tried to cross the Bosphorus, the Slavs were slaughtered as their ships tried to escape, and the Avars weren't slaughtered because they packed up and went home. Heraclius was delighted with all this success, and he marched on Dustigird and Tisiphon in very high spirits. It took him most of the year, but he was in no hurry. He was lucky enough to intercept a letter from Cosros to Shabaraz telling him to return and protect Persia. The letter was destroyed. Later they intercepted another letter ordering Shabaraz to be executed for not returning to protect Persia. Heraclius added the names of 400 other officers to the execution list and kindly sent the letter on. The Emperor Heraclius was a true Greco-Roman hero. He was on his way to what he hoped was a great victory as the leader of the Romans. But by now the Romans were no longer Romans. Heraclius himself was a native Greek speaker and probably didn't even have a working knowledge of Latin. Very little of the empire used a language that just 200 years before was spoken throughout the old Roman world. Greece and Rome as concepts had converged. 
In four weeks' time, we'll find out how the Greco-Roman hero gets on in his final battle with the Persians. For the next chapter, though, I have a special treat. I mentioned briefly in this chapter the flight of the Prophet Muhammad from Mecca to Medina. This event is part of the rise of Islam, something which would have huge consequences for the Byzantine Empire. So, in the next chapter, we will cover the emergence of Islam. But I'm delighted to announce that I won't be presenting it. For the first time, the myths and history of Greece and Rome will have a guest presenter, Elias Belhadad, creator of the quite excellent History of Islam podcast. If you haven't discovered this outstanding history podcast yet, then please go to www.historyofislampodcast.blogspot.co.uk. You can, of course, find it on iTunes by searching for The History of Islam. The podcast really is well-written, well-presented and absolutely fascinating. So, have a great couple of weeks and Elias will speak to you next time.